Morning. Our New Testament lesson comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. It can be found on page 847 of your Pew Bible. Listen now for God's Word to us today. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this, if the owner of the house had known At what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Peter said, Are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I will tell you, He will put that one in charge of all his possessions. But if the slave says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and if he begins to eat the other, uh, beat the other slaves, men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. The slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. But one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. This is the word of the Lord. There are a lot of uh, sports fans here at Second Presbyterian Church. I bump into you at VCU basketball games, at sports bars, and at the Squirrel Stadium. We have ACC basketball devotees in this congregation, folks whose Sunday afternoons are taken up with the Redskins and huge tennis buffs. I'm a sports junkie myself. I love talking to any of you about basically any sport, especially if you're willing to let me prattle on about my hometown teams in Atlanta. The Braves are vying for the National League pennant this year, by the way, and they're currently several games up on the Nationals. Even with this common interest, I don't usually invoke sports in sermons because the discussion can quickly become a jumble of cliches. When I was going through the ordination process in Atlanta in the 1990s, I got into a small amount of trouble for an essay I wrote invoking the designated hitter rule in the context of a discussion on grace. I hate the designated hitter, by the way, because I think everyone should have to bat. Sports analogies can be tricky in the context of faith. I was asked to give a talk a few years ago on baseball, Christianity, and the Bible at River Road Church Baptist. And the best I could come up with was an observation about how the book of Genesis has an implied love for baseball because of the first three words of Scripture, in the beginning, in the beginning. It's not even kidding. Nobody gets it. In the beginning, in the big inning. It's just not that funny. (laughs) Today, I'm going to break my rule and talk about an important and overlooked aspect. If you have to explain it twice, it's no good. (laughs) 
<laughs> ever. I'm going to break my rule and talk about an important and overlooked aspects of sports and by extension life. Playing away from the ball. When it comes to sports and human existence, the game is played away from the ball. Let me explain what I mean by this. Eddie Sutton, who spent his career coaching at some of the biggest programs in college basketball, used to ask his players how much they thought they dribbled or shot during a 40-minute college basketball game. They usually answered, well, coach, maybe 12, 14, 15 minutes Coach Sutton would shake his head and respond that even for a star player who's in for most of the game, it's usually two to three minutes of actual shooting and dribbling. Even a superstar like Steph Curry, who shoots a lot, only spends about four minutes per game with the ball in his hands. That means for most of the game, it's spent playing defense, getting open for a pass, and setting screens. In other words, the game is played away from the ball. A few months back, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a two-page article on a single play in baseball when the team opposing the Braves, the San Francisco Giants, had two men on base and their best left-handed hitter up to bat. True sports geek that I am, I read the whole thing, twice. Should the first baseman have taken a few steps forward to try to set up the double play? How close to the foul line should the right fielder play? What if they shifted the entire outfield to the right, assuming the left-handed hitter would pull the ball to right field, and then he hit it to the opposite field? Two runs would have easily scored. The article covered the subtle shifts and decisions made by the Braves manager and all the players. It chronicled one single pitch and how each player adjusted, each one playing the role he had been assigned. None of this has anything to do with hitting a home run or getting a strikeout. It has to do with the decisions made before the pitch is thrown. The game is played away from the ball. When you watch college and pro football this fall, when the baseball playoff races really heat up, when you head over to the Siegel Center or the Robin Center uh, next, spend a few minutes watching the whole field or court. Look at what is happening away from the ball. Look at who's hustling on defense, who looks alert, who's moving quickly and effectively for a pass. Nine times out of ten, that is going to be the team that wins the game. The game is played away from the ball. We all think about key moments in our lives when we're choosing our career path, where to go to gra- for graduate school, getting the big job interview, giving the major presentation, dropping down on one knee to propose, winning the election, getting licensed in our particular field. To be sure, these rites of passage are hugely important, and I don't want to minimize their significance. Key moments should be acknowledged and observed. Yet, do we run the risk of sometimes dwelling too much on the major episodes of our lives at the expense of attentiveness to the vast majority of our time on earth when we don't have the ball? The euphoria and agony of key events too often frame our decision-making as opposed to thinking about the everyday. When we experience pockets of pure bliss, we might pursue any and all available means to duplicate that event. Our lives become a chasing after a fleeting incident, a chasing after an occurrence that can never be replicated, as opposed to living in the ordinary space of our days. On the other hand, when we're heartbroken, 
For whatever reason, we might take certain measures to avert future tragedy, hoping that the nightmare we just experienced was a one-time event. In this case, life becomes an exercise in conflict avoidance, an effort to banish all risk and exist in a single-story home where no harm can ever come to us again. Both extremes, the chasing after glory and the conflict avoidance measures, take us away from present attentiveness to our daily lives. Life occurs away from the ball. As Coach Sutton used to tell his basketball players, those key moments are only going to take a small fraction of your life, and it's the 97% that requires our fullest attention. How do we handle ourselves in the daily rhythms of our existence? In the hallways, in the car, during our morning and evening rituals, when we take the kids to school, when we go for dinner at Westminster Canterbury. Is the world a better place because we are in it? And are we exemplars of the Christian life because of who we are and what we do in ordinary time? There's a movie that some of you may have seen called Into Great Silence. If you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's available on Netflix. The documentary portrays the daily lives of monks in the famous monastery at Grand Chartreuse amid the beauty of the Alps in Europe. Philip Groening, who made the film, offers no narration, but simply tracks the rituals for these remarkable men who rarely speak except in song or in liturgy. The film offers an amazing window into the minutia of their lives and the rhythm of their daily existence, the centrality of prayer and of song, a myriad of mundane tasks, including careful food preparation and a lack of waste. These monks take the small and seemingly insignificant jobs very seriously. There's a powerful and lengthy scene of a monk hand-sawing firewood, guided by a small slither of wood to get the pieces the same size so that they can be stored for the harsh winter that's upcoming. The scene lasts about 10 or 15 minutes, and I've never seen someone take such pride in his or her work on film or anywhere. The lives of these monks demonstrate the importance of not just discipline, but treating routine tasks with as much care as the supposedly bigger ones. Most of us don't have the disposition or background to go to the links of these brothers in Christ in terms of self-denial. But we can take a page from their attentiveness to detail, their belief in the power of song and contemplative prayer to live out their faith, and the realization that so-called run-of-the-mill days occupy most of our lives. And we have a responsibility to God and each other to take them seriously. As many of you know, the church, the academy, and Union Presbyterian Seminary suffered a tremendous loss this week with the passing of Katie Geneva Cannon. Katie was our best-known prophet at the seminary, the true pioneer of a type of theological inquiry that looks at the experiences of African-American woman, women called womanist theology and the first African-American woman ordained into the PCUSA. Her scholarly publications and speaking engagements are numerous and impressive, and she mentored generations of scholars and pastors. All of, this from an, all of this accomplishment from a woman who grew up in the highly segregated town of Kannapolis, North Carolina, and had to fight systemic racial injustice and the perception that her voice was somehow inferior. 
One of the many things that impressed me the most about Katie was her incredible work ethic. I've served on many committees with her at the seminary and several projects, including a recent issue of Interpretation, the seminary's journal on the topic of race and racism. Katie understood that positive results come from concerted effort and that revolutionary ideas usually stem from careful work that is done over time. Her capacity to focus and make the most out of every day she was given and her capacity to have fun while doing it were models for so many of us, including myself. There were no run-of-the-mill Wednesdays for Katie Cannon because she understood that every day was a gift from God to be spent addressing injustice and talking about empowering those who have been marginalized. She understood better than most of us that the game is played away from the ball. The New Testament lesson from Luke points us in this direction. The message of this parable is one of alertness. No matter where the master is when he returns, the servants are supposed to be attentive to their work. The danger occurs when one of the servants servants determines that their master is going to be away for a long time and uses this as an excuse for destructive behavior. For that person, the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour that he does not know. Jesus says servants should be dressed for action and have their lamps lit. They should be diligent in their work, even when God is not seemingly present. It's easy to get antsy or get away with less than a full effort when we think we are accountable to no one. This passage from Luke forces us to look at ourselves and remain attentive to our calling, including the drudgerous tasks that are before us. These tasks usually matter every bit or more than the supposedly glamorous ones. This entire parable in Luke clearly functions at what we call the eschatological level. Jesus urges his disciples and indeed all believers to be on guard, for they don't know when the Son of Man or how the Son of Man will come to judge them and whether their lives merit acceptance at the heavenly banquet. One of my favorite bumper stickers in this regard says, Jesus is coming. Look busy. This sense of a final reckoning is a key element in the Gospels and is intended to shape human behavior in this life, however. Even as it retains this heavenly level of meaning, the parable beckons its hearers to prudence and honesty in all of our daily responsibilities. The psalmist declares in the lesson that Catherine just read that the one who fashioned us observes all the inhabitants of the earth at all times. God watches our comings and goings, all of our time away from the ball. And I think both the psalm and the gospel lesson encourage us not, encourage us not to fritter away our days. As we think about the call to attentiveness and faithfulness in our daily lives, note the important and timeless saying about the Christian life at the end of the New Testament lesson. In Luke 12, 48, Jesus explains the nature of God's blessings. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. In case you have not noticed, the Gospels are loaded with Proverbs. The gospel writers and Jesus himself drew upon the rich tradition of Proverbs and wisdom in Judaism. And in this saying, Jesus explains that bountiful blessings mean greater expectations. For all of us who are blessed, and we are all blessed, more is required. 
The key becomes finding our call and living out our days with faithfulness and a good work ethic. A few years ago, I had the privilege of hearing a sermon from Andrew Young, the former mayor of Atlanta, a minister, and a colleague to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement. Speaking at my home church in Atlanta, Trinity Presbyterian, Mayor Young was on his way to a service at Ebenezer Baptist Church to honor the late Hosea Williams, who marched with Mayor Young and Dr. King in the 60s. Mayor Young gave us a few of his recollections of Hosea Williams to everyone in Atlanta who knew him. Reverend Williams was a firebrand for justice, unpredictable, irascible, usually militant for the causes he cared about. Everyone from Atlanta and everyone who knew him has a Hosea Williams story. Mayor Young told a remarkable story that day, one that I had never heard to explain why this was the case. Hosea Williams was a foot soldier in Europe during World War II, and he was injured badly in combat. Then the ambulance was hit, and he was the only survivor of that bombing. And he lay in the ambulance for several days, struggling to stay alive by himself until he was ultimately rescued. He was in bed for most of a year in Europe, and he returned home a disabled veteran. On the way from Atlanta to Atapulgus, Georgia, which is south of Macon, William stopped off at a bus station and began to take a drink of water. If you've ever been to Macon between May and August, you know that it feels twice as hot as Richmond does in the summer. But Reverend Williams had forgotten that drinking water from a public fountain was forbidden by Georgia law, and he got roughed up by some whites at the bus station. Needless to say, this experience made a permanent imprint on Williams, especially after he had just returned home and sacrificed so much. From that day on, he vowed to hurl himself into action whenever he saw injustice of any, any sort. And as Andy Young told us, it was often an unrestrained action. Mayor Young told our congregation that the only time Dr. King got mad at him, mad at Young, was when he tried to take on the same persona as Hosea Williams. King said, no, Andy, everyone has a place. You're rational and logical. You need to be true to yourself. You have to play the notes that God has blessed you with, and you do not need to play anyone else's note. Is this not the task of our lives? To determine the note that God, the notes that God intends us to play in the daily rhythms of our lives, and to do so in a way that is faithful to both our gifts and to God. To know that we have been richly blessed, and it is our responsibility, indeed it is God, God's expectation of us, that we see our days out with attentiveness to our strengths and an awareness of our weaknesses. If the game is largely played away from the ball, critical self-reflection requires that we determine what we do well and do it with all our might, hoping that we, in some small way, work to combat injustice in our communities and in the world. I've sat on the admissions committee for many years at Union Presbyterian Seminary, usually with Katie Cannon, and I wonder whether a union in other seminaries might have our application backwards. 
we ask for a small paragraph of four lines asking applicants to describe their daily spiritual practices and disciplines. And then we want large essays describing any mountaintop experiences and their assessment of core theological principles. But the task of ministry, and indeed the whole Christian life, is built more on the supposedly smaller disciplines of prayer, study of Scripture, and fellowship with other believers. The Christian life occurs far more on the ground than on the mountaintop. In a sense, how a person describes his or her attention to these daily matters is far more significant. The passage from Luke turns our hearts and minds to the idea of alertness at all times. It's easy to determine what a person values. Watch how he or she spends their time, and that will tell you what's important to them. Of course, within the context of our tradition... These daily rhythms have to involve generosity and gracious interaction with those in our midst. Note that in the parable from Luke, the wicked slave beats others to get his kicks. And Jesus shows this as an example of how not to act when the master is not looking. In his sermons and speeches, Bishop Desmond Tutu frequently cites a South African proverb, a person is a person through persons. This reflects the African concept of umbutu, that human beings can only exist or at least can only find meaningful existence in relation to each other. Bishop Tutu explains that since one cannot live without other persons, generosity should mark our daily interactions with each other, and only through solidarity can we accomplish anything. As we study and play, as we monitor the uncertain and tragic events taking place around the world, as we worry about the polarization and discord that has infected American society as we prepare for big-ticket events like weddings and job promotions. It's important that we be mindful that life is played away from the ball. We can think about the supposedly mundane tasks in our lives and try to do them well. The monks at Grand Chartreuse show us that the things we consider to be routine and distracting from our real lives actually constitute our real lives. It is in those places where we have the largest and perhaps most important opportunity to live out the faith with prudence, honesty, and love. My kindergarten teacher, who I was blessed to reconnect with at the end of her days, gave me a book a month before she died, and it's a diary of private prayer. And the first prayer is the one that she circled and marked up. And I'd like us to close with the prayer of commitment that she spoke every day. Let us not, when this morning prayer is said, think that our worship ended and spend the day in forgetfulness of you. Rather, from these moments of quietness, let light go forth and joy and power that will remain with us through all the hours of our day. Keep us chaste in thought, keep us temperament, keep keep us temperate and truthful in speech, keep us faithful and diligent in our work, keep us humble in our estimation of ourselves, keep us honorable and generous in our dealings with others, keep us loyal to every hallowed memory of the past, keep us mindful of our eternal destinies as your children. God, you have been our refuge through many generations. 
Be our refuge today in every time and circumstance of need. Be our guide through all that is dark and doubtful. Be our guard against all that threatens our spirit's welfare. Be our strength in time of testing. Gladden our heart with your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.